Purvis Payne is a 53-year-old black man with an intellectual disability, sitting on death row in Shelby, Tennessee, for the 1987 murder of a mother and her two children. However, Mr. Payne claims he was only assisting the injured victims and became the suspect through racial profiling and was painted as a vicious drug-using monster with a sexual bloodlust to fulfill who in a drug-fueled state brutally attacked and killed the Christopher family. His execution has been stayed many times, and he is now attempting to present the court proof of his mental handicap. But on April 9th, 2021, a new date will be set for him to be put to death. Many people have come to Payne's aid, claiming there is evidence to prove his innocence. Is Purvis Payne a vicious murderer who deserves to be put to death? Or was he a bystander, wrongfully accused, and now paying the price for someone else's actions? Let's find out. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. Cherise Christopher had just recently divorced her husband. She, along with two young children, three-year-old Nicholas and two-year-old Lacey, had moved in with Cherise's sister in Millington, Tennessee. The apartment had been rented after her sister's marriage suddenly ended, also around the same time as Cherise's. But the sister and her husband had been trying to mend things over the last few weeks and decided to give it another shot. So she moved out, leaving Cherise and the kids alone in the apartment. It was June 27, 1987. Cherise and the kids had lived there for just over a year now, and they were finally starting to adjust to a normal way of life again. The Hiwassee apartment building contained four units, two upstairs and two down, with a hallway and staircase dividing the building down the middle. The Christopher family lived in one of the upstairs units. Directly beneath the Christopher's apartment lived the building's resident manager, Nancy Wilson. Beside Miss Wilson lived a young woman named Helen Truman. Her sister, Laura Pickard, was over visiting the day of the murders. Okay, y'all got all those names? Good. Get your notepad? Write it down. Okay, there's going to be a lot of stuff you're going to want to remember. Some small details in this case. It's really going to weigh whether uh, you feel one way or the other. Okay, I think this is a very polarizing case. So, moving on. The last apartment unit, the upstairs one that sat adjacent to the Christophers, was occupied by a woman named Bobby Thomas. Bobby Thomas was not home at the time of the murders. In fact, she was visiting family in Arkansas, but was supposed to return later on that Saturday evening. Miss Thomas was dating a young man named Purvis Payne at the time, and Payne had stopped by several times that day while waiting for Bobby to return home. He was witnessed by the neighbors coming and going from the building several times and had even stopped and got water from another resident at one time. So let's look into Purvis Payne, shall we? Naturally, he was a suspect. And here's what Purvis Payne said about that day and the events that unfolded. He claims that he had gone over to Miss Thomas's apartment several times throughout the day to see if she had returned. When he returned around 3 p.m. as he was approaching the stairs in the hallway, a black man in a white Hawaiian print shirt came running past him and ran into the woods. The man apparently dropped a bunch of papers and some change on the ground as he ran past Purvis. So Purvis bent down, scooped it all up, and put it in his pocket. He then proceeded up the stairs to retrieve an overnight bag. 
and a few beers that he had left at the door of Bobby Thomas's apartment when he visited earlier in the day. When he reached the top of the stairs, he heard a baby crying and someone faintly calling for help. As he turned the corner, he saw the front door to the Christopher's apartment was cracked open. He says he went over to the door and announced who he was and said that he was coming in. At that time, he pushed the door open and saw a disturbing scene. When he walked into the apartment, he saw Sharice on the kitchen floor, badly injured with a knife still sticking out of the side of her neck, and that her hand was on the knife trying to pull it out. He said her mouth was still moving, but the words had faded away. He walked over and knelt down beside her. He put his hand on top of hers, and he pulled the knife out. When he did, she reached and grabbed him and held on until she finally fell back against the wall, weak and fading fast. So naturally, Curtis Payne has already interjected himself into this situation, right? This explains a lot of the evidence found on him that a killer might have, right? Now we have blood from the victim. You've now touched the murder weapon. You've removed it from the victim's body right? So the defense attorney had a question about this as well, and it seemed like a simple question. And I found the exchange uh, typed up. So here is a reenactment of that exchange in court. Can you explain why there's blood stains on your left leg? Left leg? Yes, sir. Evidently, it probably came, had to come from when uh, when she hit the wall, when she reached up and grabbed me. When she hit the wall? When she, when she hit, when she hit, when, when I got ready to run up, when I got ready to vomit. When she hit the wall, she got blood on you. When she splashed, it was blood, a, a lot of blood on the floor. She got blood on you when she hit the wall. Is that what you said? She hit against the wall when she fell back. Is that what you said, sir? That she got blood on you when she hit the wall? I didn't say she got blood on me when she hit, hit the wall. Isn't that what you just said a moment ago, sir? That ain't... That's not what I said. So, yeah, did y'all, did y'all get all that? I mean, he obviously explained what happened so clearly right there. All right? <laughs> you guys got... I'm just, I'm just messing, guys. But that is, that is a real... That is a real back and forth um, between the prosecution and Purvis Payne in court. Um... Yeah, I was as confused as you were, right? So, he says at the time, after that altercation, after he pulled the knife out, he went to the phone and tried to call for help, but was in such a state of shock that he didn't know who to dial. Uh, God, I don't know. Uh, should I call my mom? No, 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 she won't be here. Uh, should I call her mom? Ah, oh, shit, I don't know her mom. Uh, fuck. Oh, God, if there's just some number I could call. But he talked about how Sharice just stared at him. And he couldn't think. All he could think was get help. It was as if no numbers would come to him. As if all the ones he knew now twisted all together in his head. He was scared. And at that second, he felt himself about to vomit. So he hung up the phone and ran over to the kitchen sink and drank water from the tap. Purvis turned and saw the children. He walked over and checked on little Lacey. But he could tell that she was already gone. He then noticed that Nicholas was still alive. He walked over to him and told him that he was going to find help. 
he then turned and grabbed his overnight bag, which he had dropped at the front door when he walked in. And right then, he looked up and saw the police car enter the parking lot of the apartment complex. He didn't have to look in a mirror to know that as a black man, now covered in blood, he was definitely going to get blamed for this. He says at the time he panicked and thought only about getting out of there. So he walked down the stairs toward the parking lot, encountering the officer at the bottom of the stairs. The officer spoke to him, asking him what was wrong. And then Purvis hit the officer with his bag and ran towards the woods. He was able to outrun the officer and went to an ex-girlfriend's house. He was found hiding in the attic later that same day. When he was found, he did not have the overnight bag with him, and he had no shirt on. He claims he spilled a beer in it in the bag when he ran from the officer, and that a lot of the contents of the bag fell out as he was running anyway, so he just threw it away. Understandably, a lot of Purvis's story does not make sense, but his family claims that is because Mr. Payne lives with an intellectual disability. He is not quick to learn and often got fired from jobs because he couldn't remember basic procedures. And as he has been tested many times to confirm this. Whenever administered an IQ test, his scores were verbal 78 and performance 82. A 75 or lower is considered mentally is, is considered mental retardation. So doctors classified him as intellectually disabled. Whenever Purvis was picked up, he was not tested for drugs or alcohol, but police said he appeared to be under the influence of something. He had dilated pupils, a very rapid heart rate, and was foaming saliva at the mouth, and that he also appeared, quote, very nervous. I bet he just got arrested. When he was found, he told the police, quote, I ain't killed no woman. He knew his worst fear was now a reality. Now, as you could imagine, because I'm sure that you guys have heard a crime story or two, the prosecution told a much different story. They claim Purvis Payne had been riding around all day with a friend scoring cocaine and looking at Playboy magazines. And when he returned to Miss Thomas's apartment, and she was not there, that he went to Sharice's door. They reason it was to get a glass of water, as he did earlier in the day with one of the other residents. When she answered the door, she let Purvis in, as she knew who he was. Once inside, he made sexual advances toward her, but she refused and shot him down. Since he was intoxicated, he got angry and flew into a rage and attempted to rape her, but she fought back, so he stabbed her repeatedly. In fact, Sharice Christopher sustained 42 stab wounds, and she also had 42 defensive wounds. She lit literally fought against every single strike. Every defensive wound and stab wound was accounted for, 42 each. She was alive the whole time. A used tampon was found by her, and her shorts appeared to have been pushed up leading many to believe that this was his original motive. They said Purvis then turned his attention to Lacey and Nicholas. He stabbed two-year-old Lacey nine times, 
and Nicholas was also stabbed multiple times, with one of his wounds going all the way through his abdomen and coming out his back. Then Purvis went into the bathroom, where he wiped blood off on towels and paper towels found in the trash. And as the first officer on the scene, Officer Wilson, described, he pulled up and saw a large black man through the front window of the apartment and that the disturbance had been reported at. And he noticed that man bend down, pick something up, and then he came out and down the stairs. All that matches up, huh? At this time, Officer Wilson approached him and did notice the blood on his shirt and said he even looked like he was sweating blood but thought that he had just gotten in a fight as the call was just about screams and fighting in the apartment. He figured Purvis was covered in his own blood. He said then, Purvis struck him with the bag and took off. He pursued him, but then realized when he was pulling away that Purvis was not injured, which means something else went down in the apartment. When he went as far as he could with Purvis, he decided to radio his whereabouts, and he turned and ran towards the apartment entering into the carnage left by some heartless killer. Charisse and Lacey were both gone by the time Officer Wilson entered the door of the small Tennessee apartment. Lacey was found with Purvis's baseball cap on her arm. Her arm had gone through the hole in the back of the cap where you adjusted, and it was on her forearm. Strange. But little Nicholas lay fighting for every breath on the other side of the room. He was quickly rushed to a nearby children's hospital and underwent several surgeries, but was able to make a full recovery. Police then followed a blood trail that led them to the home of Purvis's ex-girlfriend, and he was found hiding in the attic. When police searched him, he had a small bag with white residue which tested positive as cocaine. He also had a wrapper and a cap for a syringe. This is the papers Purvis claims the man dropped that came out of the Christopher's apartment. He also lost his shoes and shirt along his route, and when arrested was only wearing his jeans and gold watch. Police claimed they noticed scratch marks across his chest, but again failed to follow procedures, and there are no photos. Great. Purvis claims that what they saw uh, were not scratches. They were actually stretch marks on his chest that he has from lifting weights. His other clothes were eventually located in a nearby dumpster on the week, in the weekend bag. His white shirt was covered in blood. Okay, so now that we have all that he said, she said, mixed in with the little facts and whatnot here and there, uh, let's get into some time frames and also some witness statements. Okay, these are very important. Now, the time frame that was given is that the first scream was heard at 3.10 p.m., and the first officer arrived on scene at 3.23 p.m. Nancy Wilson, the building manager who lived beneath Charisse, heard Charisse scream and some commotion in her apartment, and she said it went on for a minute and then stopped, just momentarily, before growing even louder than before. She walked out her back door and looked up the stairs that led to Charisse's apartment and could hear her screaming. She decided against going up for herself and instead ran inside and called the police. She was told by the operator to go into the bathroom and lock the door and wait for help to arrive. She did as she was told. And while in the bathroom, she listened carefully to what was going on upstairs. She said after the commotion died down and all the screaming stopped, she heard someone go into the bathroom 
and turn on the water. Purvis claims he never went into the bathroom, only to the kitchen sink. Very important. Then, shortly after the water cut off, she heard the front door slam, and then the police arrived. Laura Pickard, who had been visiting her sister, I mentioned her earlier in the show, when you should have been writing down all those names. See, I told you you should have. But she had been visiting her sister in the other downstairs apartment, and she had witnessed a black arm wearing a gold watch reach up and grab the door and slam it shut several times. That is when she saw Miss Wilson come out, but neither of them saw the person or could give a description, only that it was a black man's arm with a gold watch. Blood was collected from everything and tested. The blood found on Purvis matched, matched that of all three victims, which he said he got on him when he attempted to help them. There is DNA of an unknown male that was also found. It has never been tested. Payne's fingerprints were on cans of malt liquor in the apartment. His DNA was found on a washcloth in the bathroom. Awkward. And his property was left at the scene of the crime. The DNA evidence that belongs to another unknown male was found on the knife. You know, so, yikes. Yes, the very knife used to kill Sharice. However, when it was tested, it was found to be too degraded to convict anyone else but did not match Purvis. So, my question on that is, what was the DNA? Was it like, was it a piece of hair? Like, was it a skin cell? Was it blood? Was it sweat? Semen? What the hell was it? It just got so many questions. Like, if it was just a hair of another male or something, that could have gotten on there from the apartment floor or something and got stuck to it from the blood. I mean, you see what I mean? There's so many things that that could have gotten attached to this knife. It's also important to mention that there's no indication of who this knife actually belongs to. Uh, there's no ownership of the knife. Not sure if it was in Sharice's apartment already or if the killer brought it with him. Um, there are several procedures that were not followed correctly in this case, which leaves room for a lot of speculation, which is why I'm covering it. Y'all know how it is. For instance, the evidence that was in Purvis's pocket was withheld for a year before it was presented to the defense. Yikes. And the fact that Payne was not administered, administered a drug or breathalyzer test upon arrest. I know, I know, it's a lot of information. What does it all mean, right? Well, all in all, Sharice sustained 42 wounds, 13 of which were fatal themselves. Lacey had a total of nine. One struck her aorta and one had been rapidly fatal. Nicholas sustained multiple wounds and lost his mother and sister that day. Purvis Payne was found guilty on two counts of murder for which he was given the death penalty in both. He was also found guilty of attempted murder against Nicholas and given an additional 30 years. Purvis's family is now fighting to get him off death row, as it is considered unconstitutional for a person with an intellectual disability to be on death row. However, this law was not passed until after Purvis was convicted. It was applied later, retrospectively, but there are no procedures at this time that will allow Purvis to present his case to the court in order to overturn his sentence, which means he had been confirmed as mentally disabled 
but he has no way of telling the court about it. There are just literally no rules around it right now. So did Purvis kill Sharice and Lacey and attempt to kill Nicholas? Or was he really trying to help? Did police wrongfully arrest a good Samaritan? And even, even if he was not just a good Samaritan, if he did this crime, is it unconstitutional still to put him to death with a mental disability? What do I think? Let me get into it, okay? This is pure speculation here. We are in the speculation part of the show. I think he did it. Here's why. Number one, the beers that were found in the office, the malt liquor. It was a known fact that he bought malt liquor before going to the apartment complex. And allegedly, he left them in or he had them sitting beside or in the bag that he carried with him that was set outside of his girlfriend's apartment. Well, it's at the time where he's saying that he's going back to get that bag and the malt liquors that he hears the commotion. Right? He hears, well, he hears Cherie, so that means the commotion already happened. It's already over. Right? So he happens upon this crime scene. He goes in, he does this, whatever, he drops his bag at the door, he helps, you know, he tries to help, whatever. He does his whole story. He grabs his bag, walks out, hits the officer with the bag. What about the malt liquors? Okay? The malt liquors were found in the apartment with his fingerprints on them. He was there for a while. Multiple malt liquors were found with his fingerprints on them. Okay? And then also, two witnesses witnessed a man's, a black man's arm reach and shut the door to the apartment of Sharice's. And he had a gold watch. He was wearing a gold watch and no shirt when they found him. Also, the activity that the manager heard in the bathroom, right? The manager heard water running in the bathroom, someone washing up. And then they find Purvis's DNA on the towel in the bathroom when he is adamant about not going to the bathroom. Adamant about it. Okay? Now, there is one other scenario that could possibly have happened. This friend that Purvis was riding around with, scoring cocaine, whatnot, um, either way, somebody at that apartment had cocaine on him, right? Whether Purvis picked up somebody's bag whatever, or, or whatever happened. Okay, this gentleman that he was riding around with that day, what about him? He was there when Purvis got back to the apartment. You think he just dropped him off and left? Or you think they hung out maybe at the apartment complex a little bit, maybe went in and talked to Sharice for a little bit, maybe things got heated. I mean, her tampon was removed and laid beside her on the floor, and her shorts were pushed up. It was obvious something was happening there. The defensive wounds all over her. The only argument I'm willing to hear right now is the DNA on the knife. The DNA on the knife is suspicious. What the hell is going on with that? Okay, there's male DNA on the knife. It needs to be tested. It needs to find out. We need to find out how it got there. Now, it could be as simple as it 
a friend of Purvis's or someone else owned the knife and could have cut their finger on the knife and then uh, loaned it to Purvis or Sharice and it was at their apartment or maybe it was at Sharice's apartment already. Who knows? Maybe Purvis got it from his buddy that he was riding around with. Who knows? But guys, if Purvis didn't do it, God damn, who did it? And why did nobody else why did nobody else see anything? Nobody saw any other people running from the scene? Really? I don't know. It just it just strikes me as very, very odd. Like I said, the the malt liquor, the beers that had his fingerprints on them in the apartment was just like the nail in the coffin for me. I'm like, how did those get there? What do you do? Try to help him and then was like, oh shit, I'm gonna sit here and drink like three beers while I calm down. Nah, he was there already. He was hanging out at the apartment already. All right, now there is one thing worth mentioning and I saw it in one video and I will link it down in the, down in the sources below this and I'll try to note it in some way that you know. But it's, this is uh, done on YouTube. It's a woman in Tennessee. I can't remember the channel, like I said. I only watched it one time. But she had this one bit of information from a witness. Uh, a Mr. Williams is all she would call him. Mr. Williams. Apparently, he was at the complex that day or something around the area somehow. I don't know. But this quote-unquote Mr. Williams. Now, this lady lives in the Tennessee area. She lives in this area, I guess, so maybe she was able to go to the complex and, or maybe interview people involved. I don't know, okay? But as far as court documents were found and all this, this guy was not interviewed in court. He was not a witness in court, as far as, I'm con as, far as I can find. I couldn't find anything with a Mr. Williams, okay? But she claims that this Mr. Williams said that he saw another black man that was not Purvis Payne because he knew who Purvis Payne was and he also knew this other black man, okay? So he knew who both of them were distinctively. This is, I guess this is important for his testimony. Very important. <laughs> so he, this other black man ran out, covered in blood, ran to his car and drove off. And then... Minutes later, he sees Purvis Payne come out, get in his car, and drive off. Okay? Now, this man, this Mr. Williams, also stated that Sharice sold cocaine for a local drug dealer in town. And this was known. And he knew that because he himself had bought cocaine from her and had, and had done cocaine with her. So, like I said, this is one testimony. Um, let me guys tell you. Let me tell you guys where I found it. I found it on a YouTube channel called Amanda Kitchens uh, Innocence Investigation, and she has a video that she posted on October twelfth of last year, twenty twenty, called uh, Innocence Investigation: Purvis Payne Part One, and she works in lo local law enforcement. Um, and she also lives in Tennessee, so she does have more access to this case. So I'm interested to see what else she covers. But she has a 22-minute video, part one on Purvis Payne, that is that is excellent. It was a it was a great study source for this. Um, but 
Again, that information about Mr. Williams, that testimony, that's huge. I mean, that's huge because that just makes more sense. Honestly, that someone else was there, that makes more sense to me. That two people were there. And who was this guy he was driving around with? I'm serious. That guy needs to be looked into. But, of course, if that guy is connected, and if Purvis witnessed this man killing this family and these children, do you really think he wants to rat on him in prison? I don't think so. I don't think so. So, something is not right in that situation. Either way, but even if Purvis was there, right? You're an accessory to the crime. That's why I think, regardless, he did it. He's there. Whether he had remorse and wanted to stop it, maybe did something to stop it, maybe just showed up a little bit late, maybe he was standing outside while this guy went inside to take care of something and then he ran in, maybe he attacked while Purvis was in the bathroom. I don't know. But that story makes the most sense. And I said all that to say this, I do not think Purvis Payne should be put to death it's just not that solid of a case still. He should not be put to death. Even if he stood there in terror as this man killed these people um, with his mental disabilities, he should not be put to death. I think he should get life. And <laughs> coincidentally, that is exactly what his legal team is looking for in this appeal. They're not talking about exoneration. If you check out the terminology, they're not talking about exonerating him. They're not trying to get him released. They just want they just want his sentence transferred to life. That he shouldn't be killed. And I agree with that 100%. Purvis Payne does not deserve to die for this. Regardless of the reasoning, regardless of what happened that day, um I just don't think he deserves to die. Life Yes, for the accessory, for the crime, for being there. Um, he was definitely very close to this crime somehow. All right, well, that's enough of me. That's enough of me rambling. Let's check in with Lauren, guys. Let's see what he thinks in this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Break it down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Break it down the case like. Break it down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Break it down the case like. Break it down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The horrific murder of Sharice and Lacey Christopher and the attempted murder of young Nicholas Christopher in June of 1987 in Tennessee and subsequent uh, potential wrongful conviction of 20-year-old Purvis Payne, uh, who was seen at the crime scene, um, actually across the hall at his girlfriend's apartment, covered in blood, uh, immediately following the brutal stabbings of this family. Um, Now, Purvis... Uh, as I said, was dating a girl across the hall. And he claims that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, that a man had run out of the apartment past him. And out of curiosity, he wandered into 
the apartment the man had run out of um, and found this family basically butchered. Um, young Nicholas, who was three years old at the time, would survive miraculously, being stabbed many times. Charisse would have been stabbed uh, a total of, I think, 84 times, but it was 42 stabbings through defensive wounds that multiplied. Um, and young Lacey, who was a two-year-old girl, um, died quickly um, at the scene. Um, now, Purvis, Purvis Payne would be convicted of these murders, and a lot of people say that it was due to the fact that he was a, a black man and this was a white family, and this is Tennessee in the 80s, and there was still a lot of uh, racial bias going on, and they painted him to be uh, a young, uh, drug, drug-induced, sex-starved, uh, basically uh, deviant. Um, he was found, he, the police, when the police arrived, his story is that he was afraid. He saw a white cop pull up. He was covered in the victim's blood. He had touched the knife because when he went in, Sharice had a knife sticking out of her neck, and he claims he pulled it out um, in order to try and help her. He then panicked when he saw the white police officer, um, threw his bag at the police officer, and fled the scene. He was later found in, the, in an addict of a home. Um, and supposedly he had drugs in his pocket when he was found in the attic. I found that a little bit fishy. It's like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you ditch the drugs if you did in fact have them? It's just a little convenient. There's this baggie, uh, this perfect baggie with like a needle and cocaine and everything in it. A little bit suspect. However, there is no denying that there's an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence uh, that paints Purvis Payne to be the perpetrator of this crime. I mean, his fingerprints were all over the apartment. There was cans, uh, unopened cans of malt liquor inside the apartment sitting on a table, as well as an empty can outside of the apartment. Um, the victim's blood-soaked clo- uh, blood soaked into his clothes, and his fingerprints, as well as his DNA, were on the murder weapon, the knife that was found at the scene. Um, now, later on, there would be an unknown male's DNA as well on the handle of the knife. Um, and that DNA would never, it was too, by the time they tested it, uh, there's so many frustrating things about this. It, I get that it was 87 and the DNA testing was very rudimentary at best. Um, however, they hold on to the DNA and why did they not test it over the years as DNA progressed? They waited and waited until the DNA had uh deteriorated to the point where they couldn't match it to anyone. They just knew it was an unknown male. Um, that would definitely have been helpful to try and match that to someone else. Maybe this person has a criminal record and in a perfect world, you could have tracked down this person and potentially gotten a confession if someone else did this. Um, now let's not forget, um, after digging in, I did find articles in which young Nicholas Christopher, the three-year-old boy, who was stabbed many times by the perpetrator who killed his mom and younger sister, um, he's he's alive and he's in his 30s now. And he still to this day claims that Purvis Payne was the person who killed his little sister and his mom. And even when he was three at the time, right after the murders, uh, there's a, a story that I believe he was sitting with his aunt and the news was reporting on this crime and he saw Purvis Payne's picture go up on the TV and said that that's the man that killed my mom and sister. Um, now he's three and I understand most of us don't remember 
anything that happened when we were three. But I think in this circumstance, when you're, you know, when you're that young and something this dramatic happens, it's, there's certain things you do that stick out in your memory when you're young, you know, like big events. This is one of those events where your sister and your mom are killed in front of you and you're nearly killed. I'm pretty sure the face of this person would be burned into your skull. I'm honestly somewhere near 50-50 on this, whether Purvis did this or not. There's some things that really bother me as far as him being convicted that, you know, this stand out like his mother following his arrest, um, asked the police to drug test him because he was never, he was never known to do any drugs or alcohol. According to his family, according to his girlfriend, he was a very borderline straight edge guy. He was uh, known as a great family man, like uh, his girlfriend's kids. He was, he was apparently a great figure in their life. And um, somebody who didn't get into trouble. And like I said, didn't do drugs, didn't do alcohol. So it was, they were, uh, they were not believing the story. The police were saying that he was uh, high on drugs, watching, looking at porno magazines and whatnot when he perpetrated this crime. Um, and when the mother asked for them to drug test him, uh, from what I've heard, the police refused. Why would you refuse that? Because it doesn't go with your narrative that you have nothing to lose by testing it, if you want to know the truth, if you want to know who really did this, instead of potentially framing a person um, because they were there. It's it's a tragedy if Purvis's story is true. It's an absolute tragedy. It it makes me think of the Green Mile when John Coffey stumbles upon this uh, unbelievable crime perpetrated against those two little girls by an evil man, and he just happens to you know, be the wrong place at the wrong time holding these two young girls, and obviously... We know how that goes if, if you've seen the book, movie or uh, read the book. Um, and uh, as far as other things that bothered me, the, the evidence getting lost, the DNA not being tested until it's no good anymore, you know, things like that are just all too convenient. And it almost seems like they either know they made a mistake or, um, you know, or they're just, they don't care anymore. You know, it's just like, why turn it, why turn around time now? It's too late. Um, and I understand that, you know, he should be already dead right now, according to the system, but he did get a reprieve. Um, he was scheduled to be killed in December of 2020, and now it's coming up on us quick, April of 2021, and there's a lot of petitions going around to uh, save him uh, from being killed. And he has a very low IQ. He's had learning disabilities his whole life, and I'm not sure the death penalty should have ever been on the table to begin with, considering he had no prior record and he has learning, uh, proven learning disabilities, like supposedly couldn't eat on his own until he was five years old. Um, so I, I'm not sure this is a person that should have been uh, convicted of the death penalty, even if he had done it. So, yeah, that's it's a, this is a tough one. Um, most of what you hear, I know it's gotten popular on TikTok, this case, um, you know, people trying to save his life and um, claim his innocence. I don't know how much they've studying they've done or they've seen a TikTok video that's, you know, a minute or less long. I hope most of these people are diving in and seeing both sides, not just because most of what you find online, um, it only talks about the things that make Purvis look innocent. There are a lot of things that make him look guilty as well. I'm not convinced either way. I didn't sit on the trial. I'm sure there's so much more that we would have learned if you were, you know, on the jury. There's always so much more than you can find on the internet. So it's a tough one. This one's a tough one because it was such a such a brutal, heinous, unnecessary crime. 
an absolute monster perpetrated this. Um, was it Purvis? I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent convinced. Like I said, I think I could only really make that determination if I sat on the, on the jury, because, you know, so much of what's out there on the internet, it's, it's hard to, you, you get either the, the court papers or you get one side or the other, the guilty side or the non-guilty side. You, you get very few, there's no gray area, you know, when looking at it online. So, um, I can, I can see, I can see how this potentially could have been someone else. I heard, um, uh, her ex-boyfriend was, technically supposed to be locked up but he had free reign to leave and that would be the perfect time to commit something like this if you wanted to kill your ex and your kids for instance you know what better time to do it than when you have a built-in alibi in the system and then you you happen to you know find a black man standing outside the apartment that'd be even better it'd be like oh well i can frame this guy he's standing here so i can i can definitely see both sides i could see a world where purvis did do this um, and I can also see a world where he was just a, like, like I said, really, really unlucky timing, um, and is innocent. And that would be just an absolute tragedy. So I'm not done digging into this one. I want to know the truth, um, because his life is on the line within a month potentially. So I, you know, if I read more and I'm convinced of his innocence, I will be signing whatever online petition I can, um, but I, I'm not going to lie, I crammed on this one to study, to, to record this synopsis for you guys. And I read as much as I could today. Uh, but there, you know, I, d I need to dig deeper into what really was presented at trial uh, as far as the prosecutors. What more was there other than circumstantial evidence? I know there's DNA evidence, but there was also this unknown male. And Purvis doesn't deny being there and touching things. And there's reason for his DNA to be in there according to his story. Um, so it's, 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 man, it's, it's really tough. It's a tough one. Um, cause if he did it, th this heinous crime, um, it's hard to have sympathy. It is even, even with this low IQ, it's hard to have sympathy. So that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, Lauren, thank you very much for that excellent synopsis. Look at this guy. He crams, right? He says he crams. Oh, I just read a little bit and got more information than Michael. No big fucking deal. No, I'm just kidding. But the the information on Nicholas now uh, in his 30s, very interesting. The fact that he still uh, is convinced that uh, Purvis Payne did this murder, right? But then again, we're looking at the testimony of a three-year-old. If Purvis Payne was just there, he could have easily um, confused his face with someone else's face, put him in a situation he wasn't in. That's very easy to do, especially with all the speculation and and all the all the media attention that this case has has received, right? Depending on and depending on what news articles and um, what stories, what videos Nicholas is watching about this very case. Right? Because like Lauren said, I don't think I have ever studied a case with more divisive information. You pull up one article and you're like, within seconds, you're like, okay, they think he's they think he's innocent. Or you pull up another one and within seconds, you're like, okay, you you guys just are obviously just think he's guilty. Like immediately. And like Lauren said, um, this crazy 
uh, outpour in support of his innocence, uh, it just seems, uh, it seems too early. It seems too early. Like Lauren said, if, if this is a case that I'm following very closely as well, and if more information comes out and there's just one thing, just that one piece of information that it's just like, oh, it couldn't have been purpose, right? Then I think he needs to be completely exonerated and uh, he needs to receive some sort of payment. But at the very least, I think regardless of the outcome of this story, I think Purvis Payne needs needs to have life in prison. Not, I mean, at the very at the very least, they should they should at least give him life in prison instead of the death penalty. Um, that's just my opinion, and guys. I'm very interested to hear you guys' opinion on this case, and um, and also you guys be on the lookout as well. You know, because we constantly got our noses in other things and other cases and true crime, and we're we're likely to come across it. But if you guys see any updates or any new information, please uh, send them to me. And if if we find that we can help this man from this from this tragedy, and it turns out that he is innocent, then we should do all that we can. You know, having the knowledge that we have now, we we have the responsibility, right? All right, guys. I want to thank all of you. Uh, for all that you do to support the Strange and Unexplained podcast and True Crime Guys productions and all that we put out. Uh, the number one way to help this show, of course, you guys know, is Patreon. Patreon.com slash podcast. For just three bucks a month, you guys get early access to these free episodes and also access to another show that I do called Strange Shorts, and that is released every Monday. So, And at the $5 tier, you also get... Uh, strange and unexplained exclusive Patreon sticker uh, is a three by three square with the strange and unexplained logo on it, but it's at nighttime. Whoa, weird stuff happens at night, right? I don't know. That's the idea I was going with, I guess. But also, if you join Patreon now, you'll already be on there and you'll already be a Patreon veteran, knowing how everything works. And in a few months, when Standu Stories goes exclusively to Patreon, you won't feel left out anymore, right? Because if you guys don't know, last week's episode, Sandu Stories, Chapter 1, that is a new chapter in uh, the Sandu podcast saga, okay? And those Sandu Stories will be released uh, every four weeks, so once a month, a, a new Sandu story will come out once a month, and that will be exclusively on Patreon at the $5 tier. So, if you guys are interested in that, I highly suggest you get in on the Patreon game. Guys, for five bucks a month, I mean, come on, it's cheaper than your Starbucks coffee, right? But, if you can't, I totally understand, and I appreciate your support, I appreciate your downloads, I appreciate you guys going and leaving reviews, whether it's on iTunes, or uh, Apple Podcast or uh, Stitcher, where else can you leave reviews? Not that many places anymore. Uh, you can't leave reviews on Spotify, where it feels seems like everyone's going to, which I listen on Spotify. I love Spotify. It's probably the least glitchy. Um, but Spotify doesn't do reviews. So, odd. I guess reviews don't matter. Anyways, I like to read them. So, if you guys want to leave a review, you want to get a cool shout-out, that's a good way to do it. Or, if you want to leave a case suggestion and guarantee that I not only get it, but I will read it on air. So, I can't really deny it. So, best way to give a case suggestion, leave a review. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this one has been 
I think, long enough. I hope you guys are confused and uh, morally conflicted, right? All right, guys, we'll see you next week with a new Strange and Unexplained. Remember, be strange, just don't be strangers. <laughs>